As Steve described in his talk the other night on the Four Noble Truths, the journey is uh, one in the Buddhist path that goes from suffering to the end of suffering. And there are a lot of different words for this usual state of suffering that we find ourselves in, sometimes called bondage or clinging or grasping, or known by the term samsara, which kind of points to the depth of habit that's involved in it. And also there are a lot of terms for the end of suffering. It can be called nibbana, freedom, release, liberation, enlightenment, awakening. So all these terms describe the journey and kind of the spectrum of the journey that we're on. We go from the state of bondage to the state of freedom. And in the talk tonight, I want to discuss this quality of freedom and how it relates to the path, how it's... uh, a part of the path itself. So the subject of this talk is unentangled knowing. For you who are not native English speakers, this term unentangled is an odd term. The term tangle refers to a twisted mass of usually yarn or string or hair that's gotten all mixed up like you've taken a ride in a convertible and then when you go to comb out your hair, it's all twisted together. And then we put the word entangle in front of it and that's the verb. That's how things become knotted, twisted, and snarled up. And so the word un in front of entangle means we undo that tangle that has been formed. So this is the term unentangled knowing that appears in a translation of a talk from a Thai lay woman teacher. Lay teachers in Thailand are a little bit rare to begin with. Lay women teachers are rarer still. This woman's name was Upasika Ki. Upasika means a lay woman supporter, and Ki was was her name. She taught from the 1950s through the 1970s, and she has a wonderful book that's a collection of her talks called Pure and Simple. She was relentless in pointing practitioners back to the very central question of Dharma practice, this question of bondage and freedom. And all her talks hit this point again and again and again. So her book is highly recommended. She's a very strong teacher. This is the the sentence that this phrase comes from. She was pointing people to develop, quote, an inward staying, unentangled knowing, All outward turning cast aside. So we'll come back to this quote. We'll fill it in a little bit and come back to it later. This is kind of the gist of the talk. This image of the tangle was used by the Buddha often. It appears often in the suttas in describing our usual condition. He commented at one point in the Anguttara Nikaya, the world is smothered and enveloped by craving like a tangled ball of yarn. Craving, creating the tangle of all our desires running in so many different directions that they get twisted up with one another and we get enmeshed in competing desires. And in the Samyutta Nikaya, there's this exchange where a questioner comes up and asks the Buddha, poses a question. And you should know in this exchange that Gautama is his family name, the Buddha's family name. And so some people called him Master Gautama or just Gautama. So the questioner comes up. They say, a tangle inside 
and a tangle outside. This generation is entangled in a tangle. Things haven't changed very much, have they? So I ask of Gotama this question, who succeeds in disentangling this tangle? Well, this is our project, isn't it? We're all here to disentangle this tangled knot of craving and suffering that we find ourselves in, in the habituated patterns of mind. The Buddha's reply basically is that one who develops virtue, meditation, and wisdom disentangles this tangle. And that's what we're doing here, sila, samadhi, and panya. So what Upasika Ki was pointing to is a quality of mindfulness or awareness that knows objects without getting caught in grabbing after them and holding on to them so that the mind stays, you could say, balanced in relationship to a changing field of experience. This is a pointer to the same quality that Kamala talked about last night in her talk on equanimity. Finding that balance that lets us know all the arisings and passings, but keeping steady, keeping a, um, a balanced mind in relation to them. It's the same pointing Tonight, I want to kind of draw out or emphasize the freedom quality that's intrinsic in that place of equanimity and that is uh, one of the reasons we practice for unentangled knowing. So we're fully aware, that's the knowing piece, and we're not entangled, meaning that we're not getting hooked into latching on to these objects out of greed or aversion, but we're seeing clearly. So greed is not happening through hanging on. Aversion is not happening through pushing away. And we're fully aware, so delusion isn't happening either. So unentangled knowing is a state that's relatively free from these three afflictions of greed, aversion, and delusion. These moments happen for us. You could call it moments of equanimity or moments of unentangledness throughout the day. But they may be subtle and pass quickly, and if we're not trying to tune into them, we miss them. So also this talk is just an encouragement not to do anything different in your practice, but to begin to notice when the mind is in this place of balance and non-reactivity. And in that place, begin to feel for yourself the kind of freedom that you can feel in a moment here and now. As part of the talk, I want to review a few approaches to meditation that kind of head directly in this general direction. All of our practice heads toward this greater equanimity and freedom. And there are three practices I'm going to talk about in the second half, specifically oriented to bringing out this quality of unentangled knowing. But before we go there into the area of freedom, we have to understand a little more clearly how we get bound how we get caught. So I want to describe in a little detail how bondage takes place on a moment-to-moment basis. The Buddha's basic outline of bondage and freedom is the Four Noble Truths, as Steve described the other night. But in another teaching, he describes it and breaks it down in more detail in a moment-to-moment unfolding, and that's usually called the chain of dependent origination. He traces 12 links that take place, you could say moment by moment, in a 
not entirely causal, but related sequence where one gives rise to the next to the next that lead us to the place of suffering again and again. These 12 links are are quite complex, could take a whole talk in and of themselves, but I'm going to strip out the first five and the last three and focus just on the central four. (laughs) So these first five and the last three get more philosophical and they get a little more complicated, but these central four, if you understand these, you'll understand how to practice with dependent origination. This is kind of the heart of it as we can feel it moment by moment. So the first thing we have to open up to is our basic situation as human beings. And I want to suggest that all human beings, young and old, male and female, um, enlightened, unenlightened, of all genders, races, etc., have the same basic experience, which is that in any moment, there can be six things happening. So the Buddha pointed to this in a sutta called the Sutta on Totality. And there were a group of monks around, and he said, Listen, monks, attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of life. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty brave. You know, Freud didn't say that. <laughs> Marx didn't say that. Einstein didn't say that. Here's the Buddha 2,500 years ago. I'll teach you the totality of life. He said, it is just the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and sensations, the mind and mind objects. Anyone who described a totality different than this would not be knowing what they were talking about. So when you think about it, this is our whole human experience, isn't it? This is what's happening for us in any moment, in every moment. There are sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, and mind objects. Mind objects being thoughts and emotions, primarily. And we can receive these data because of the what are called in Buddhism the six senses, the five physical senses and the sense door of the mind. This is what makes this set of arisings possible. So in any moment, in a way, it's really simple. There are only ever six things happening. At most. Sometimes none of those are happening. So it makes meditation practice easy, doesn't it? You just have to be aware of these six things. It's really simple. So here's where we jump into the chain of uh, dependent origination. The first five links go by. The sixth link is called contact. Contact is the coming together of the sense organ, like the eye, the sense object, like the sight, whatever is in front of you in the visual field, and the consciousness related to that sense organ. If you're asleep or under anesthesia or passed out, that uh, consciousness is not so active. So, you know, in those situations, sleeping, anesthetized, passed out, you're not experiencing sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. Not in an obvious way. So the consciousness is not so awake right then. But if you're awake, your eyes are open, you'll experience seeing. If you're awake and your ears are working, you'll experience hearing. 
So the coming together of the consciousness, the sense organ, and the object is called contact. That's just the Buddha's vocabulary. Contact basically means these data of the senses. So a sound arises, that's an item of sense contact for you. That's sound contact or or hearing contact, whatever you'd like to call it. So our basic situation is that contact is happening through these six senses all the time that we're awake. Can you stop these happening? Can you just say, uh, ears don't hear, nose don't smell, mind don't feel? Can you do that? No. These things happen whether we want them to or not. And our situation as human beings is that we're constantly being contacted by these different phenomena of the six sense doors. Now, this wouldn't be problematic if they were all pleasant all the time. But they're not. They alternate. Sometimes pleasant, sometimes painful. So, we're sitting here, we're sensitive beings, so these things are impacting us all the time. How do we respond? So that's the next link in the chain of dependent origination. It's called feeling tone. The Pali word is Vedana. Feeling tone means that every one of these moments of contact might be pleasant, or it might be painful, or it might be neither. We'll call that neutral. Pleasant, painful, or neutral. This is important because it conditions the reactive formations. When something is pleasant, if we're not paying attention, what do we do in relation to it? We hang on to it, don't we? We want it to last, so we take a hold of it and we try to make it last. If something is painful, what do we do? We want to push it away. Notice that in order to push something away, you first have to take a hold of it. So first you have to grab it and then you have to push it. So if we want to hold on to it, we grab it and we bring it closer. If we want to push it away, we grab it and then we push. But in either case, the grabbing happens in order to do that. If it's neutral, you notice what your relation to neutral experience is a lot? It's so boring. It doesn't grab us one way or another, so we just kind of space it. We don't really pay attention to the neutral. Just like neutral people in our lives, as the metta meditation reveals, we can just kind of ignore them. They don't inflame our passion. So, delusion accompanies neutrality, greed accompanies the pleasant, and aversion accompanies the unpleasant. These are manifestations of what's called craving. The second noble truth Steve talked about, tanha, is the reactive mind, this quality of thirst that wants things to be different than they are. Even though craving sounds like a a desire force, it encompasses both the wanting to pull the good close and wanting to push the averse away, or the difficult away because desire basically wants to keep things always pleasant. So it likes the pleasant and it doesn't like the unpleasant. So craving encompasses both greed and aversion. 
Because we don't notice we're doing it, there's usually delusion involved also. Most people in the world, when they push and pull, don't know that they're pushing and pulling. They don't know greed and aversion are operating. So they're not seeing clearly the reaction of their mind. So delusion is also present. So craving generally rests on greed, aversion, and delusion. And you can think of it as synonymous with these three. So craving is provoked by the feeling tone, and then it leads into this grabbing a hold of, which is called clinging. So altogether, the sequence goes contact, has a feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That feeling tone tends to condition a reaction of greed, aversion, and and or delusion, and that leads us to grab a hold of the object. Once we've grabbed a hold of something, the chain goes on to suffering. So basically, suffering, either gross or subtle, is unavoidable once the grasping has happened. So let me, let me give you some examples to make this um, more real. Let's say that you're a yogi on eight precepts, which a number of you are. Lovely to see you undertaking the practice of renunciation. You go into the dining hall at tea time to get your modest glass of juice, and you see this little sign, ice cream on back table. <laughs> And you think, why did I take eight precepts now? Ice cream is like my favorite food, and I can't have it? Well, maybe I'll take some and put it in the yogi fridge overnight. But it's ice cream, you know, it's going to melt if you put it in the refrigerated compartment. So you really, and you can't be an eight-precept person being seen hoarding ice cream. You know, that wouldn't, <laughs> that wouldn't look good on the yogi resume. So then, you know, you could get into a whole story about this, Maybe I should go off eight precepts just for tonight. I'll have a little bit of protein first, and then I'll be ready, and I'll go over, and I'll have the ice cream after. And um, I could just go back on eight precepts tomorrow night. Um, But um, I wouldn't feel totally committed. I made this pledge. I'm just going to do it. I said I'd just do it. But I'm really hungry tonight. I didn't really take enough lunch and now I'm feeling hungry and I love ice cream. Why did they have to put it out tonight? Why couldn't they have waited till the last lunch? And what am I going to do about this? And so you could get caught up in this spinning for a while and you could kind of feel disappointed for like the next hour about being hungry and not being able to have the ice cream. And then at some point, you know, this whole issue would just fade away and it'd be over and gone. So in a way... By the taking hold of the ice cream thing, you've kind of taken birth. You've become a new person, a new you. And this is the you who is the hungry yogi on eight precepts. And as long as you keep thinking about and missing the ice cream, you can sustain that you for like an hour through the having taken a hold. And this is an incarnation that has a little bit of dukkha in it because it's founded on missing and lacking and, and wanting. So we say here that we've taken birth, that by grabbing a hold of that and thinking about it, my habits, my desire, my like, my favorite food, my hunger, we create a new I in this time frame that is like a little birth. It's like we've given birth to a new person who is, let's call it, the hungry yogi. So the hungry yogi exists for like an hour, 
that lifespan is full of wanting and incompleteness and frustration. And at the end of the hour, the hungry yogi passes away. And then you're just back in walking meditation, appreciating the hills and the the sunset light and all of that. It's fine again. But that birth, which was born from grasping, was not a happy one. Okay? So there are also happy births. You come into a sitting, you sit down, really present. Oh, I feel great in my body. My attention stays where I put it. The mind isn't wandering. I'm starting to feel steady and stable. My body feels relaxed. My mind is still. This is the meditation I've always knew I could have. So by becoming, um, let's say, aware of that and then grasping it, then we become someone, I'm a good yogi in a concentrated state. And now I'm a good meditator and I love it. I've struggled up to now, but now I, I love meditation. <laughs> so we go out for a walking period. We go through our walking. We're pretty present and we sort of can't wait. I can't wait to get back and, and be, be in that concentrated state again. I just know it's going to be there for me. So we go back in and we're really looking forward. I'm going to have that excellent sitting, my very best sitting all over again. It was so blissful and peaceful. And we sit down and it's all gone. The body's kind of cranky and the mind is all over the place. A lot of thoughts, a lot of energy, a lot of restlessness. We can hardly find the breath, much less stay with it. And then we're hugely aversive. How can this happen? I'm a concentrated yogi. How can this go away now? I'm really frustrated. I'll try really hard to get it back. And so we get really close to the breath and I'm not going to let one go by. And then we just get tighter and tighter and our concentration just leaks away. So in this case, by claiming the good concentration and the result, the fruit of the meditation, we've identified with it and we've given birth to the good yogi or the concentrated yogi. And we think that will extend into the future. So we have this new identity, we take it out for a walk, we come back and it goes away. And then that going away is painful. The concentrated yogi dies at that point. And it's a painful death. So either we grab a hold of something painful and then we have an unhappy life, but a pleasant death. (laughs) Or we grab a hold of something wonderful And we have a happy life, but a painful death. So either way, there's suffering that comes out of our having clung and kind of formed this new identity. In either case, eventually we come back to balance. We do return to this state of balance where we've let go of the holding. We've released it. And then we're again kind of open to everything that's coming and going, more or less. And this is is the place in meditation we become more and more familiar with. If we review our whole life, it's kind of been like this all along. We've been aware and things have been coming and going. Things have come like uh, mother, breast, food, father, school, middle school, romance, crushes, rejection, high school, College, career, taxes, Britney Spears, Paris Hilton, MTV, (laughs) 
the whole thing unfolds from there. All these experiences coming through our consciousness, through contact. And some of them we really like and want to hold on to, and some of them are really scary and threatening, and we want to push them away or pull back. So finding this place of balance in relation to all these changing appearances is not so simple. But if we take hold, we end up suffering. So we start to see that when we hold on to something, we take birth as a new I, a new self. And we get this understanding about grasping or clinging or holding on that Andrew Olensky describes in uh, one of his essays. Andrew Olensky is the director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. It's a study center right next to IMS in Massachusetts, and he's a, a Pali scholar. He says, what becomes clear through this analysis of moment-to-moment experience is that grasping is not something done by the self, but rather self is something done by grasping. The self is constructed each moment for the simple purpose of providing the one who likes or doesn't like, holds onto or pushes away what is unfolding in experience. This is a very perceptive comment. It's not that the I does the grasping. Grasping happens through an action of mind, but when it happens, the I comes into being. The I is formed out of our taking a hold of something. This is the way the self gets created moment after moment. Mostly for people untrained in meditation, life consists of what is called monkey mind. It's like if you've ever seen a monkey swing through the forest, it'll hold on to one vine, but it'll only let go of the one vine when it sees another vine that it can hold on to. It lets go of one in order to hold on to the next, and then it'll let go of that one in order to hold on to the next. So the monkey is always holding on or about to hold on, and that's how it makes its way through the forest. So mostly in our life we go from holding on to one thing and taking birth and passing away and then holding on to the next immediately. In spiritual life, we start to see this. We start to see the grasping and we can feel the, the pain of it. It's not always easy to let go. Ajahn Chah said uh, 70 to 80% of spiritual life is knowing you're clinging and not being able to let go. <laughs> this seems fairly accurate in my experience. But we learn a lot from watching this unfold moment by moment, and maybe there's another choice. Maybe there's another way to respond. If the chain of dependent origination just takes us over this same ground, contact, feeling, craving, clinging, and on to suffering, that's just bondage again and again and again. But there has to be a way out. There has to be freedom somewhere or the Buddha wouldn't have taught that we could become free. So where, where is the freedom? And is there any freedom now or is freedom only going to be something that's at the very end of the journey when we attain arahantship or full liberation 20 lifetimes from now? Is there some freedom available here and now? Which is another way of saying, can this chain be broken? from contact, feeling, craving, clinging. So, 
referring back to Kamala's talk on equanimity last night, do you ever have the experience of being with a pleasant experience and not have craving arise? Does that happen? Yeah. Do you ever have the experience of being with unpleasant experience, painful experience, and not have aversion arise? Yeah. This is possible. And this is what equanimity is all about. So through strengthening the mind and paying close attention, we can start to relate to pleasure and pain without falling into craving. This is the big insight of dependent origination. We can find freedom in relation to our experience on a moment-to-moment basis. And the freedom is based on we feel the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, but we don't slide into craving. So classically, this is where the chain of dependent origination gets broken. And when it's broken here, it doesn't have to lead to suffering. It doesn't lead to suffering. If we don't move from feeling to craving, the link does not progress to suffering. So it means that we're experiencing pleasant and unpleasant uh, contact, but the mind doesn't go into greed, aversion, and delusion. So this is an area that we want to investigate in our practice. At what moments is the mind free of greed, aversion, and delusion? We'll come back to this a little later and uh, pinpoint it a bit more. But when we're there, we could say that we're resting in a, a space or a gap or an openness between feeling and craving. One Buddhist teacher said, the whole of the path is resting in the gap between feeling and craving. This is all we have to do to notice clearly contact and the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and hold the mind in balance so that we don't slide into craving. That short-circuits the trip to suffering. It doesn't happen. So begin to explore this in your meditation practice. What does that feel like? When feeling is present but you don't slide into greed, aversion, or delusion... What's the feeling there? And generally, I would say the feeling is of spaciousness and equanimity. And in that kind of equanimity, there's a freedom. In that moment, by not being embroiled in reactivity, we have a space that feels free. It feels open, can feel light, can feel peaceful, can feel wide, From that space, loving-kindness and compassion and joy come more easily. So this is a place, at least relatively, of freedom. That kind of gap, that resting then, is not being determined by the conditions at the six sense doors. Pleasure and pain are coming, but we're not falling sway to their conditioning. We're resting in a place that's not determined by them. And you could say in this, we're moving a little bit out of the conditioned realm and into the unconditioned realm. This is from Ajahn Chah, Jack Cornfield's first teacher. It's a little long, but um, please be patient. It's a nice piece. Uh, 
The Buddha talked about conditioned and unconditioned things. Conditioned things are innumerable, material or immaterial, big or small. If our mind is under the influence of delusion, it will proliferate about these things, dividing them up into good and bad, pleasant and painful, likes and dislikes. Why does the mind proliferate like this? Because there is still the belief that all these things are oneself or belong to oneself. The tendency to conceive things as oneself is the source of suffering, birth, old age, sickness, and death. This is the worldly mind spinning around and changing at the directives of worldly conditions. This is the conditioned mind. The unconditioned refers to the mind that has seen the Dhamma, the truth of conditioned things as they are, as transient, imperfect, and ownerless. When we know conditions as neither ourselves nor belonging to us, we let go of conditions and attain the Dhamma. We enter into and realize the Dhamma. When we attain the Dhamma, we know clearly. So when we rest in this gap, we're not taking birth. We're not taking on a new self, a new incarnation. And because we're not taking on a new incarnation, we're not subject to death at that point. So another word that's used for this um, coming into birth is the word becoming. I mentioned that a lot of people came to talk to the Buddha during his uh, life and asked him a lot of questions. So there's one kind of sweet passage in the Sutta Nipata where these Brahmin youths have all gotten together and come to visit the Buddha. Brahmins at the time were in a school that was not particularly appreciative of uh, the Buddha's teachings or lineage. It was the established ecclesiastical order of the Buddha's time, connected with, with Hinduism later on. So these Brahmin youths, there's something very sweet about them coming to seek counsel from a teacher who's outside their own lineage. So one youth whose name is Todea asks the Buddha, for one who is freed, what is that liberation like? Wouldn't you like to have asked the Buddha this? Wow, what's it like where you sit? So the Buddha replied, that sage is without desire. He has nothing. He is unentangled in becoming. No desire, having nothing, that is owning nothing, unentangled in becoming. So that means not generating this new self through clinging over and over again. Ajahn Chah had another pointer. You can imagine him teaching in um, Thailand in an outdoor hall. The temperature is very mild um, there even in the evenings. So most of the talks are given in halls outdoors. So there's a floor and then pillars going up on the sides that support the roof, but there are no walls. So it's just open air. So you can imagine Ajahn Chah in one of these settings. And he points and he says, the roof is a becoming. The floor is a becoming. But in the empty space between the roof and the floor, there's nowhere to stand. Where there is no becoming, that's where there's emptiness. So you can imagine, you can stand on the floor. There's existence here. You can stand on the roof. But in the space between and the empty spaces going out, there's nowhere to stand. So that's emptiness. And to put it bluntly, he continues, we say that Nibbana 
is this emptiness. So what he's saying is that when we rest in that gap and don't go into the formation of self, we are resting in a kind of peace that is related to the goal of the whole path, this kind of supreme peace that is the goal of the whole path. And the reason it's related is because this moment of peace is not so constructed. It's not something that we've, say, put together through effort, but it's rather by non-activity, by non-clinging, that this kind of peace is disclosed in the mind. So we're touching on something that Ajahn Chah said was somewhat fundamental. He said, this is something that's unborn and uncreated and partakes, therefore, of not dying, partakes of the deathless. No self being born, no self dying. It's always available. It's always present. That has to be one of the qualities of something that's not subject to conditions, to coming and going. Always available, this peace. This is from Ajahn Jumnian, another Thai forest teacher. The best way to develop a great awareness is to rest your attention within that knowing space of consciousness, in the pure space of knowing. If you understand and can rest in this pure knowing, that is the place of the deathless. From this pure consciousness that's unmoved by what arises, then you see the phenomena of the world, which all have the nature to arise and pass away. Phenomena show their dharmas of impermanence, and this other is the dharma of the deathless. So in the Thai forest tradition, this is a frequent pointing. That as we rest in this place that's free of greed, aversion, and delusion, we are touching a little bit or having a little taste of this unconditioned peace that is the goal of the whole path. So we can start to feel in this when greed, aversion, and delusion are absent or relatively absent, we can start to feel the freedom of that because the freedom we're tasting is a little taste of the freedom that's at the end of the path. But this freedom is also the way to walk the path. So as we rest with awareness, the path continues to unfold ever deeper and deeper in our practice. So in a way, you could say that the freedom is the goal. Even this taste here and now is the goal, but it's also the path because it keeps deepening in that direction. So it's a way of understanding that the path and the goal have come together for us. And when you start to feel that, you can feel a lot of trust, a lot of confidence, because all you have to do is refrain from clinging. Pay attention and don't cling. Simple, no? Simple but not easy. So one of my teachers in Thailand rested here a lot. This was Ajahn Buddhadasa, who there's also a photo of in the Gratitude Hut. There's a photo of Ajahn Chah as well. Ajahn Buddhadasa was one of the most uh, inspiring monks and teachers in Thailand in the last half of the last century. He was an iconoclastic monk because he was not afraid to speak out on social issues. So he would speak out against the government and... Uh, 
and even high officers if he felt they were not treating the people well. So for some time he was frowned upon by some of the authorities, but he continued to speak his mind. I went to practice uh, with him at his monastery in southern Thailand. He was very available. He lived in the forest his whole adult life, lived very simply, and every morning he would go and sit out on a bench near his uh, cottage, small cottage. And he would sit out there surrounded by forest roosters that would just walk around pecking the ground at his feet. And these big temple dogs, which I swear could detect Westerners and would nip at our heels, (laughs) but left the Thai monks alone. So it was always a little bit of an adventure to go up and talk to Ajahn Buddhadasa anyway. But you'd go to talk to Ajahn Buddhadasa and he'd be sitting on his bench and as a monk I would come and do my three bows in front of him and then I could ask him whatever I wanted. I could talk, talk Dhamma with him. It was very available. But I was very unnerved and I, I found him kind of intimidating because he had this great equanimity where everything arose and passed and he wasn't reacting to it. He was just meditating all the objects of his experience And so he was also meditating me. (laughs) So I'd sit down. He wouldn't really acknowledge much about my existence. You know, a Vipassana teacher, you walk in, they say, oh, have a chair. Can I get you a box of tissues? Welcome. It's so good to see. This was not Ajahn Buddhadasa's style. I'd go in and make my bows. He'd meditate me. He'd just be in this place of great equanimity. And I took it as rejection. Like He doesn't want me here. It was only sometime later that I realized he didn't care whether I came and talked to him or got up and walked away. He was completely equanimous about my arising and passing. (laughs) I was just another phenomenon in his field of experience. And he had really settled there. I never saw anything disturb that basic equanimity. Ajahn Buddhadasa talked a lot about... um, the lack of satisfaction in conditioned things. So this is one of the things we experience. As we start to find this balance, we look at the changing experiences in the conditioned realm and we realize they're all subject to coming and going. None of them is going to give us a lasting satisfaction. So we start to also find this place that we can rest in, free of greed, aversion, and delusion, is actually more satisfying than sense experiences. And we start to develop more of, of a, an attraction to this place, this resting in this gap, this place of freedom and equanimity. That's really where we want to be. And we start to kind of lose the interest in the objects themselves. So one of the things that can support this shift, and it happens for many people quite naturally, and for some people it doesn't happen, so it's not necessary to make this shift, but something that can support the shift, is we move our attention away from focusing on the objects to focusing on the quality of awareness itself. We start to get disenchanted with the objects that arise because they're not permanent, they don't stick around, they can't deeply satisfy, but we get really interested in this quality of knowing, or you could say awareness or consciousness, that's always there that holds these objects or receives them or knows them. Ajahn Buddhadasa called this quality satipanya, 
It's an interesting conjunction. You don't find it so much in the Buddhist teachings, but you find it in the Thai forest lineage. The word sati, which means mindfulness, combined with the word panya, which means wisdom. And it suggests this quality of awareness that looks out at our experience with a blend or a union of mindfulness and wisdom. This is where we want to settle in our meditation practice. This is what we want to discover, this combination of satipanya. And one way to do it is to turn our attention from the objects toward the knowing. Now, if you stay with the objects themselves, that's fine. The satipanya will also grow there. Don't worry about it. You don't have to change anything you've been doing. But some people find this other approach helpful. So in other words, you start to turn the attention to awareness itself. Moving it away from looking out and more into looking back. Looking at, you could say, what is looking. So some of the words that lead in this direction are turning the attention back, turning the mind back on itself, turning awareness back on itself, becoming aware of awareness, looking back at awareness. And to get a little bit of the flavor of it, you might just, uh, in this moment, let your eyes roam around the room. And if you like, even be a little greedy. You know, light on the things that you like and the people that you enjoy and the images of the Buddha and Prajnaparamita and the flowers and kind of delight in that. Just let your eyes roam, the trees outside, the hills. And see if in doing that there is a little bit of energetic pull toward those pretty objects. As though the eyes, something's being drawn out through the eyes toward them. Okay? Now, take that outward going energy and turn it back to what is looking. Take that awareness and direct it back on itself. Does it feel any different when you do that? What feels different? How does it feel? What, what shifts? What feels different if you do that? More spacious? More peaceful? Not relating to the things? Not grasping. Okay. She said, I can't do it. That's fine. Just making suggestions to play with. And we'll make some other suggestions and you can play with these too. So sometimes it will connect for people, sometimes it won't. Don't worry if it doesn't. It's just an alternative, alternative approach. So sometimes some people report that instead of being drawn outward, which can lead to taking a hold of, this approach sort of settles us back a little more. Brings in spaciousness, an element of peace, and a non-attachment into the moment's experience. As you drew the awareness back, did you lose track of visual objects? You're still seeing, aren't you? Yeah, you're still seeing. You can relate to the world, but you're in a more settled back place, which has an aspect of 
non-grasping, which is freedom, and spaciousness, which is equanimity. So for some people, this um, meditation approach can lead rather directly into this place of unentangled knowing. We take the emphasis off the outer objects, we put it back on awareness itself, and that movement can cut some of the entanglement, some of the tendency to focus and grasp at objects. So this is a very interesting thing to explore. And what we end up exploring is the quality of awareness itself. So I want to talk a little bit about that. This is referred to in the Buddha's teachings, the word I use, um, by the fifth aggregate called consciousness. The aggregates are the way the Buddha described human experience, and one of them is consciousness. We mentioned this earlier. The knowing of a sound, a sight, a taste, a touch, a smell, a thought, an emotion. The knowing of that. Every time we're awake, we're knowing that. So if we hear a sound like this, we can look at two aspects of it. There's just the sound. It's a fairly nice sound. It's a pleasant sound, especially because it means the end of the sitting. It's a really nice sound for meditators. But it's a pleasant tone, you know, nice overtones. But then we can also notice our knowing of it. You're aware of it, right? When you hear the sound of the bell, you're aware of it. So there's something in you that is conscious of it or that is knowing it. Those are all synonyms. So we can tune in directly to that knowing quality, which is there with every bit of sense experience. It's not that there are two separate things, the knowing and the bell. The way I understand it, they both come up together. So when you hear this, There's just one experience, right? That's just one thing. But in Buddhism, we like to look at human experience. So there's one thing. We can know two aspects of this, the sound and the knowing of it. So that may seem odd that there are two aspects of one experience, but it happens all the time. Like I'm going to hold up this bell. Is it round or is it gold? It's just one thing, but it's both round and gold, right? So it's one thing. It has two aspects that we can tease out. So when I strike the bell, one experience arises. There's the sound and there's your knowing of it. So what we're doing is we're placing our attention on consciousness itself. Feeling that knowing taking place in us. And what happens when we do that is we take a step back from the world of objects. Normally we think, you know, especially in Western culture, we think the world is made up of objects. We just take that for granted. Oh, the world is made up of, you know, earth and roads and buildings and women and zafus and men and walls and lamps and ceilings, trees and flowers We think that's what the world's made up of. But in Buddhism, the world we want to look at is the world of human experience. That's where suffering happens. That's where freedom happens. That world is made up of consciousness 
knowing land and roads and buildings and floors and women and men and ceilings and lamps and so on. So everything that arises is known in human consciousness. And when we start to see it that way, that gives us another, you might say, refuge that's not immersed in, it's not stuck in the world of objects. It gives us another place to go. Now, finding this quality of consciousness is not so easy. Ajahn Sumedho has this nice... uh, description of this. He said, it's just like the question, can you see your own eyes? Not so easy, is it? Nobody can see their own eyes. I can see your eyes, but I can't see my eyes. I'm sitting right here. I've got two eyes and I can't see them. (laughs) But you can see my eyes, but there's no need for me to see my eyes because I can see. It's ridiculous, isn't it? If I started saying, why can't I see my own eyes? You'd think, Ajahn Sumedho's really weird, isn't he? <laughs> Looking in a mirror, you can see a reflection, but that's not your eyes. It's a reflection of your eyes. There's no way that I've been able to look and see my own eyes, but then it's not necessary to see your own eyes. It's not necessary to know what it is that knows because there's knowing. Ajahn Chop uh, put it similarly. He said, don't worry about not being able to grasp this awareness or find this awareness. You're riding on a horse and you're asking, where's the horse? It's working for you. So just notice your awareness to the extent that you can notice it. This is one way, one meditation approach to step back from enmeshment with objects. I want to mention one other briefly. In the last several years, um, some of us, I think all four of us teachers, have been relating to a Burmese teacher named Sayadaw Utejaniya, who I think Steve originally met in Burma and has since brought over uh, to the West. And Sally and I had a chance to practice with him uh, at IMS when Steve brought him over a few years ago, and Kamala has spent time with him also, and whose teaching we've, we've really appreciated. Steve mentioned something the other day about, or maybe Kamala said it, about not being so concerned about the objects of mindfulness practice, but more concerned with the quality of your, of your awareness. This is a pointer from Utejaniya, who says, follow your usual meditation technique. You can be aware of sounds or breath or body, emotions or thoughts, but always notice how are you relating to them. And he had three simple questions to check your relationship. And he said, check this often. Are you relating to them with greed? And you'll know this if you want something else to be happening. So you're experiencing a moment, but you look and you see you want something else to be happening, then there's greed in the mind. Or are you wanting something to stop happening? The pain in the knee, the ache in the back, the mood of restlessness. Then there's aversion at play. Or are you not in touch with what's happening? Are you spacing out? Then there's delusion. So he says, check. What's the attitude of the mind to your experience? Is there greed? Is there aversion? Is there delusion? And you can feel into these just in the moment. So the way I began to practice with these, I was using many of the same objects that we've talked about here. Breath, body sounds, thoughts, emotions. 
And then regularly I would start to check, is there greed, aversion, or delusion? If there is, you don't judge that, you just become aware of the greed, the aversion, or the delusion. As I got more familiar with it, I could check more often. So I started checking maybe five times every sitting. I'd ask these three questions. If there was greed, aversion, or delusion, I'd know it. Then as I got more familiar, I would check like ten times a sitting. And as it got more familiar, I would never stop checking. My main meditation was checking my mind to see if it was tilting into greed, aversion, and delusion. So in that way, the meditation becomes, am I falling into craving, greed, aversion, delusion, or am I free of it? And that's all, in a way, that one needs to do. This again is from Upasaka Key. So your awareness has to take a firm stance right at the mind in and of itself. When mindfulness is standing firm, the mind won't be affected by the objects of sensory contact. If mindfulness slips and the mind goes out latching onto things, troubles will arise. So you have to keep checking on this in every moment. There's nothing else that's so worth checking on. When you practice in this way, you release the fixation on the passing objects and you put the attention where it's really most important and that is, what's my heart doing? Am I falling into greed, aversion, or delusion? So in a way, it's the same movement back from the world of objects and into the world of our own awareness. And Upasaka Key puts it uh, in this way. The mind that's aware of awareness doesn't send its knowing outside this awareness. Nothing can be concocted in the mind when it knows in this way. In other words, an inward-staying, unentangled knowing, all outward-going knowing cast aside. So we keep our attention directed inwardly at the very state of our own heart, looking for its reactive formations of greed, aversion, and delusion. And if they don't come, then we simply rest in that unentangled knowing which has the quality of freedom, contentment, spaciousness, equanimity, and vitality. Because it's a very awake place. We're in touch with everything that's happening, but we're not caught. So this inward turning doesn't mean we cut off from the world. As you saw with placing awareness on awareness, we still see, we still hear, we can speak and relate and so forth. But it means part of our attention, the most important part, stays with the movements of our own heart and mind. That's our first priority. This is freedom here and now. This is also the path. Practicing in this way opens us up to more and more freedom as the path unfolds. So it is full and rich and contented here and now, and it's also onward leading, develops all the factors of the path. So I'll just close with this quotation, again from the Sutta Nipata, when the Brahman youths were coming up to question the Buddha. This was a later Brahman youth named Kappa. He said to the Buddha, For one stranded in the middle of the lake, in the flood of great danger, overwhelmed with aging and death, 
Tell me the island, dear sir. The Buddha replied, Having nothing, clinging to nothing, that is the island. There is no other. That is Nibbana, I tell you, the total ending of aging and death. So let's just sit for a minute together. Having nothing, clinging to nothing, that is the island. That is Nibbana, the total ending of aging and death. So thank you for your attention. We have about 30 minutes for walking and the last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.